who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your, Your Angry, Angry Neighborhood, Neighborhood Feminist. Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspectives. And we are back at it with another Forgotten Feminist Faves episode. I know. And Keegan, we were just saying it feels like so long since we've been doing this. It really does. I feel like I'm out of my groove a little bit. Like, I feel like I need to get, like... I do, too. And you know what? It's weird because it's only been, like, a little bit over a week. I know. Since we've recorded before. So I don't know why it feels like it's been so long, but it does. I just feel like an emptiness when I'm not around you. Oh, thanks. (laughs) You like that I feel empty? Yeah, a little bit. I do feel like a lot has happened. Like your friend was in town. You got fucking engaged. I got engaged. engaged. Yeah, so I feel like um, a lifetime has happened since I've seen you. So that's probably why we feel this way. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. It's crazy. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, I'm so excited that we are doing another Forgotten Feminist Favorites and... We used to preface this at just about every episode. We are not experts on any of this kind of stuff. These are things that we find interesting and want to talk about with each other and with you. So especially during these stories, I'm sure there's lots of stuff that I've left out. But mine this week, I'm really excited about. Okay. I'm really... I've been talking about this story since the beginning of the podcast. Okay. Do you remember when I gave you the book, The Invention of Wings? Yes, I do. And I still have it. (laughs) It's okay. You can have it forever. So the story, uh, The Invention of Wings by Sumunk Kidd is mostly, there's two narrators. There's Sarah Grimke and her personal slave, Hetty. Okay. Okay. So in this story, it's, so it's showing from, from the two, um, women kind of simultaneously through their lives and things like that. And Sarah Grimke is somebody who was one of the first abolitionists and feminists. And it kind of shows her struggle between those two worlds and also coming from a very religious standpoint. Um, 
She's someone who's inspired a lot of the early feminists, and so I think she's kind of cool. All right. I mean, we covered the Grimke sisters a little bit when we talked about first wave feminism. Yeah. Just barely scratched the surface on it, yeah. so very excited to hear more. Yeah, I was going to do me. both of the sisters, and it would have just it would have been really long. So I'm focusing on Sarah because that's the one that the book really focused on, and then I'll talk about her sister Angelina as I go along as well. So Sarah Grimke was born on November 26th, 1792, to Judge John Fouchard Grimke and Mary and Mary Smith. She was the sixth of 14 children. What like nationality is that? Fouchard Grimke is that like what like? German or something? It sounds kind of German, doesn't it? Grimke sounds German to me, but Fouchard, I'm not sure. Yeah, it's, it sounds really German, doesn't well, it? I mean, in the end, it doesn't really matter, but... It doesn't. It <laughs> no, just it made is, me think It's a very, it. like, severe name. So, they lived in South Carolina. Her father was a wealthy planter and held hundreds of, hundreds of slaves. And the word held here was something that I grappled with because he owned them. But then, like, right. the website that I was reading said held. And the, I feel like the, that was kind of an interesting wording. Yeah, the verbiage use. is interesting there right? because it, it, it sounds like they're trying to make it sound a little less severe. Right? And But I wanted to keep it in because I wanted to have, I wanted to ask you if that sounded as weird to you as it did to me. Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty common language. Like, it's definitely language I've heard before, uh, and I've never really thought about it like that. But it definitely does seem like something... Right. Um, I think language is important. and I think them. Yeah, and I think with something as ugly as slavery, you should just use the words that are true in this scenario. I so, agree. Yeah. So he was a chief judge on the Supreme Court in South Carolina. So he was an important dude. Probably a real nice guy. Oh, he's a great guy. So Sarah disagreed with slavery since childhood, and once after seeing her father give a beating to one of his slaves, she tried to board a steamship to to a place with no slavery. She's like, I'm out. I'm going to get on a boat. I want to go to somewhere where there's no slavery. You know what? As someone who's like a very like empathic, like empathetic human being, I can so relate to that, and it makes me so sad for this poor little girl because... I mean, she really didn't have a say. No, you don't have a say, and it's got to feel so like helpless to be in a situation yeah. like that and feel like you can't do anything well, about it. And there's an interesting part of the book that I couldn't find any factual evidence on it, but it's a very par- powerful scene in the book where the book starts as the her mother is like literally tying a bow on Hetty, the slave, mm-hmm. and being given to Sarah for her birthday. Mm-hmm. And Sarah was like appalled and wrote. So she always wanted to be a lawyer. That was like her her father was a judge. Like her whole family was very oriented around law, and they just kind of like brushed her off because she was a woman. And so she would she went and wrote like a legal document of like what she thought would be a legal document, basically rejecting the gift. And then the next morning, she woke up and outside her door was the torn up letter. Okay, great job, parents. Yeah, well, so, that's that's what's in the book. So I couldn't find anything factually oh, okay. like that. That's exactly what happened. Any verification for that? But, right. So but if but this was is, also in the seventeenth, like late seventeen. I mean, I, yes, so. I understand. It was totally okay to like squash your little girl's like. But I'm saying like <laughs> it, was, it was hard to find like evidence of that stuff when it's so yeah. long ago. Yeah. Oh, know? yeah. I mean, and and to be honest, that does sound like a flourish that an author would a little create. bit. Yeah, but it um, showed how she had such. Um, passion for law and for justice. Yeah. And uh, her father definitely squashed that. And we'll see that more when we talk about her young life. So, like I said, she was really passionate about becoming a lawyer. 
Her father didn't believe that that was womanly, and was she was forced to receive a mediocre education meant for young girls at the time, which included, like, embroidery, learning French, watercolor painting, and um, she learned to play the harpsichord. Like, she's like, no, I don't want to do this. Like, I want to, like, actually learn stuff. And her father let her read any book in his library except the law books, knowing that that's what she was really passionate about. He sounds like a dick. Oh, he's a complete dick. So, when Sarah was young, she grew a very close relationship um, to her father's slaves, and she would head church services and teach Bible study, but she would get very frustrated because she was trying to teach Bible study, and they couldn't read. And so when she asked her parents, her parents said that teaching the slaves to read would lead them to be unhappy and rebellious. So she also didn't understand why her community would encourage slaves to attend church services and be baptized, but not consider them to be true brothers and sisters. So... In secret. It's a good question. Right? Exactly. <laughs> so she's like 11 years old, and in secret, she is teaching Hetty in real life to read. So when she's supposed to be brushing her hair, they turned all the lights off, they screened the keyhole, they laid on their stomachs with a spelling and writing book, and she was teaching her to read. That's beautiful, but also very, very scary. Very. So this is a this is a quote that she wrote later in life. She goes, I took an almost malicious satisfaction in teaching my little waiting maid at night. When she was supposed to be occupied in combing and brushing my locks, the light was put out, the keyhole screened, and flat on our stomachs before the fire, with the spelling book under our eyes, we defied the law of South Carolina. And they were caught eventually. And Hetty was beaten very badly, and then a few months later died of an unspecified disease. Yeah, see, this was my... Listen, we obviously needed abolitionists like this um, at this time. Of course, we needed people to be able to take the risk to teach slaves to read and things but like that. But she was putting her at a really great but, risk. But And her child's mind couldn't have possibly known. Right. Even th- though she'd seen a lot of horrors, she couldn't have possibly comprehended that in doing this and... You know, you're so you're still a child, so as careful yeah. as you think you're being, we never got one over on our parents the way we thought yeah. we did. You know yeah. what I mean? And that you are you are putting right. that that person at risk. And I would guess that her unspecified illness, if it happened after her beating, was probably an infection of some kind. I agree. Yeah. I completely agree. And I think that she because she has such empathy, um, was completely broken by it. And I think that that's probably one of the things that spurred her passion as she right. went on in life. It's not something that she ever forgot about. Right. I and I, and I want to say, like, I'm not trying to chastise this little girl who, like, thinks she's doing the no, right but like, she, thing. But you know? she, she did do something that was yeah. so scary. And I mm-hmm. think she realized that as she got older. Like, I mean, she said it was it was a malicious thing. Like, it was a very, like, I think in her of mind course. it was like... It was defiance. Yeah. Yeah. So I think as she got older, she realized the danger she was putting this girl in. But they were, like, the same age. And they're and she children. Was just like, I just want you yeah, to read. Of you course, know? they're children. And it came from such, like, a pure place. Yeah, exactly. So Sarah's brother Thomas attended Yale Law in 1805. And he's, like, iffy for me. He's very, like, hardcore religious values, anti-enlightenment, like, hardcore. But yet at the same time... He really encouraged Sarah and would, like, teach her stuff. 
when he okay. would come back from law school. So he was kind of like a so-so kind of dude, it seems He like. sounds like the kind of person who's, like, shitty to other women unless he's related to them. Yeah, right? Exactly. <laughs> you know what I mean? Where he's just like, my sister's okay, but, exactly. like, every, everyone else sucks. Yeah, and I think she, I mean, they had, she had, like, well, okay, so three, I forgot to say that three of the children died in infancy. So she still had, there was 11 brothers Jesus and sisters. fucking Christ, yeah. dude. Like, so her poor mom was just, like, constantly oh, yeah. pregnant. Well, we'll talk about that, too. Oh. So, um... God, days before Sorry, birth control. No, know, right? thank you. Um, so she, her brother had a lot of the same kind of um, beliefs in, you know, Sarah doing what she wanted to do. And I think, I wouldn't say he's an abolitionist, but like, I think that he at least kind of heard her from like, just the things that I've He was read. like a moderate for the time, like not a, a super yeah, conservative. Yeah, I think he cared about her. You know what I mean? So it's Cared about her and what she felt was important. Yeah, but when he left and went to Yale, she felt really alone and isolated, and she was alone in her questioning of the treatment of women and the institution of slavery. And she later in life writes, Slavery was a millstone about my neck and marred my comfort from the time I can remember myself. Sarah's father told her that if she had been born a man, she would have been the greatest lawyer in South Carolina. Can you imagine being like, you would be so great at this. Too bad you're a girl. Sorry, gonna hide all the law books from you. Yeah, exactly. What a piece of shit. So Sarah's education was finished by the time she was 13. And her mom had just given birth to another little girl, Angelina, and she was so happy to have a new little baby sister. So Sarah and Angelina were 13 years apart? 13 years apart. Wow. So the mother was so overwhelmed by the demands of the large house and so many children that she was basically like, here, raise my baby, to the point where Angelina actually referred to Sarah as mother for most of her life. That's kind of how I feel about, like, the Duggar kids, where I'm like, listen, there's nothing wrong with having a large part in your sibling's, like, upbringing, like I did with my little brothers, but... There is something to be said about not allowing your children to be children. And yeah. Well, this is also like she's done through education. I mean, by of course, it's a very different. We're talking time. about the eighteen hundred. But the she was century. so. I mean, she really was. I think very lost too. And her brother left, and so the fact that she had this like little baby sister, they just had an amazing bond from the start. Uh, Sarah had always had a really strong religious background. You know, talking about teaching, um, like Bible classes and like wanting to teach scripture and things like that. Um, she believed that religion should play a larger role in improving the lives of those who suffered the most. So she became a Presbyterian in 1817. Later that year, Sarah's father fell ill and she was forced to join her father to Philadelphia to see a doctor and she was to be his nursemaid. She's like, fuck this. I don't want to do this. So when they get to Philadelphia, the doctor's like, I'm sorry, I can't help you. You know what would be really good for you? Some sea air. I know. Oh my God. We're just going to put you on a boat to New Jersey and you're going to be... Dude, if you read any, like, 18th or 19th century literature, it's always just, like, I was sent here because the country air would cure me, or, like, the the sea air. Yeah. I'm just like, guys, that's not how health works. Yeah, no, not at all. So he was on his way to New Jersey, and he died. But Sarah decided... (laughs) I'm sorry, it's not funny. Bye. (laughs) Did I say it weird? No, it, (laughs) it was very abrupt. I wasn't expecting him to die yet. All right. He's dead. He's gone. Let's move on. Sarah decided to stay in Philadelphia, and that's when she decided that she wanted to become a Quaker, and she really wanted to become a minister. Uh, she Quakers were woke as fuck back then. They were, the but, there, but there was a lot of issues as well. So she was she had met somebody that she was really drawn to, um, this guy, John Woolman, 
and she was immediately inspired by his message. And Woolman strongly condemned slavery as evil and was among the first to link the discrimination blacks faced in the North to slavery of the South. Quakers also allowed okay. women. Yeah. Hey. Quakers also allowed women to become preachers and leaders within the church, and Sarah thought that that could be her calling. So she is in Philadelphia. She's like, I'm going to be a Quaker. I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to devote my life to, gonna to be an abolitionist. You're going to marry a man named woman, which is pretty she great. Didn't mar- she never oh, married. okay. She never married. Oh, okay. Which, it says Sarah Moore Grimke, so I'm wondering if maybe it, it, everywhere that I was seeing it says she never married, but maybe I missed something there. Or maybe, I don't know, It, it maybe there's some kind of tradition where it was like a maiden name of her mother's or something like that. No. I don't know. Yeah, it was, well, her mother's name was Smith. I don't oh, know. Oh, well, then I don't know. But um, so sh- by this time, she was already... Um, like shunned from South Carolina. They did not want her back. So she goes back to the South uh, to Charleston to save her sister. And then Angelina came with her and then she also joined the Quaker faith. So this is kind of when their journey together kind of begins. So Sarah and Angelina began traveling together, giving speeches and speaking out on the abolitionist circuit. Eventually, their speeches regarding abolition and women's rights would reach thousands. By this time, both sisters were were banished from Charleston. Sarah and Angelina's speeches were not always well-received and caused them a lot of trouble in the Quaker community. Sarah had desire to equip women for economic independence and usefulness, and she was attacked by abolitionists for finding her views too extreme and from feminists for focusing too much on abolition. So she was kind of at a catch-22 a little bit. Well, yeah, it's that issue that we discussed in our um, First Wave Feminism uh, episode where we talked about how it was very difficult to kind of strike that balance because no one believed that you could care about two issues simultaneously. Mm -hmm. That kind of intersectionality didn't exist back then. It was one or the other. Yeah. So in 1836, Sarah published Epistle to the Clergy of the Southern States and Letters on the Equality of the Sexes and Condition of Women. Um, That was the first document to link slavery to the unequal treatment of women. And this was something that had a lot of um, criticism so it was a series of letters addressed to Mary Parker, who was the president of the Boston Female Anti-Slavery Society, to defend the right of women to speak in public in defense of moral cause. So she would, she was basically, in a way, kind of sh- comparing the reality of slavery and the reality of women's rights. So there was a lot of criticism there. And then... What I read is it says Sarah is in no way had in no way intended to to, to suggest that the condition of free women can be compared to that of slaves okay, that, and suffering or deg or degrad. That yeah. was the question I was going to ask. So the criticism was coming from her making that comparison yes. as equal. Yes. Okay. And then she basically was saying like I had no intention of of making it seem like it was the same. It says So that, it's like an that, OG celebrity apology. Okay. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> it was like the condition of free women can be compared to that of slaves in suffering or degradation. I can't talk tonight. Um, but women face the same limitations as slaves in education and work opportunity, which, again, I don't think is necessarily true. But well, I think I, she was trying... I think it's true. I understand what she's trying to say. Yeah, it, I think she was trying to make it be relevant to the other women that she was speaking to to understand slavery and to understand women's rights at the I, same time. I get what she's trying to do and right. I'm not mad at it. I, yeah. I understand where the criticism comes from. Um but I think it is important to kind of draw those parallels where they exist. Yeah. Now they don't exist in the same way 
you know, to the same extremes. Of course yeah. not. You know, and I'm glad that she clarified that. But... Exactly. Yeah. So part of that that she said, I have like the whole thing written here, but it's I mean, not the whole thing, but I have like a big chunk of it. So I'm just going to read the end here. It says, I deeply regret such a state of things because I believe that if women felt the responsibility for the support of themselves or their families, it would add strength and dignity to their characters and teach them more true sympathy for their husbands than is now generally manifested. I Um, think that that's so true in both aspects. I think that we can only benefit as a society when there are more men who are staying at home with their kids and seeing mm -hmm. how hard that is as a job. And there are more women in the workplace and seeing how how taxing that is because it's not about one job being more difficult than the other job. It's about both jobs are equally difficult. And if we both do both of them, then we can both understand that. Exactly. So Sarah was the author of the first developed public argument for women's equality. During this time in Philadelphia, Sarah also worked to become a member of the clergy for the Quaker faith, although she was heavily discouraged from her male members. She was very inspired by her fellow feminist and Quaker clergy, Lucretia Mott. And Lucretia Mott does play a role in the book, too, and it's very interesting. She's such a cute old lady. Um, she's kind of a scary old lady. I, I know, her but picture. because she's kind of scary, she's kind of cute. I, don't I know. mean, listen, don't judge a book by its cover. Obviously, she was an amazing lady, but I saw that picture of her no, and I was scary. like, you are terrifying. I know. Um, Sarah found that while the church was something she agreed with in theory, it was not delivering on its promises because she just tried for so many years to be a part of it and they just shut her down. So Hmm. she was like, you know what? I believe in what you're trying to say, but you're not going to get me where I need to go. Sounds like (laughs) the church still. Right? Is (gasps) that crazy? still what the church is like. It's like, I appreciate and love your message, yeah. but your messengers fucking suck. Well, did you know? Okay, so she actually was trying to shut down certain branches of Christianity for being unchristian. She was like, no, 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 the things that you're doing um, are not okay. Can I do that? I know, right? Because there's a lot of it happening yeah, right now. I agree. She she was very critical about um, religions that were not practicing what they preached. Yeah. So, go Sarah. Uh, 1836 was also the year that the sisters joined the American Anti-Slavery Society. They then went on a 23-week lecture tour, and they visited 67 cities, which was unheard of for a woman. Completely unheard of. So their speeches also were seen as unwomanly because they spoke to mixed-gender audiences, which were called promiscuous audiences at the time. And okay. they would also publicly debate men who disagreed with them. And then the public was like, you're a spinster. And they were like, what? And they were like, Fuck so you. what? Yeah. They were just like, oh, my stars. Oh, my stars. I'm a, a spinster. A woman has an opinion. <laughs> this is amazing. So two years later in 38, Angelina married Theodore Weld. And he like, okay, so he was a really leading abolitionist, but he... Didn't, he was one of those that was like, women's rights have no place in this. None. And wrote letters to Sarah being like, your speeches suck. Here's why. You're a horrible speaker. And I'm sorry, this is the person who married her sister? Yes. And they stopped speaking after that. They stopped like giving... She was so like... I don't understand. This is a problem that we continue to have, yeah. even to this day, where I'm like, you guys, we can care about... More than one thing at a time. Yeah. We don't have to focus well, on just one problem. To me, it seems like 
he came in and was like, I'm running this show now. Like, you girls did your thing. Thanks this for holding it we, down. Yeah, this is what we need to focus on now. Sarah, like, Angelina's kind of holding it up with the whole speaking, but she's my wife now, so she doesn't have to do that. And, like, you really shouldn't be doing it either. Oh. Um, oh, Theodore. She, he, yeah, I know, right? But she, I think, was just really discouraged. I mean, she continued her activism till the end of her life. She They just stopped giving as many speeches. Um, from when the Civil War began, she wrote and lectured in support of Abraham Lincoln. And following the Civil War, the family moved to Hyde Park in Boston, Massachusetts, where they joined and served as officers of the Massachusetts Women's Suffrage Association. In 1868, Sarah discovered that her late brother, Henry Grimke, had three illegitimate mixed-race sons by his personal slave. She welcomed them into her family and provided funds to educate them. Archibald and Francis James Grimke went on to be leaders in the African American community. They became oh, ministers. They got married. Like they're, you should look them up too because they're great. So on March seventh, eighteen seventy, when Sarah was seventy nine and Angelina was sixty six, the sisters boldly declared a women's right to vote under the Fourteenth Amendment by depositing ballots in a local election. They marched to the polling place in a driving snowstorm and were jeered by onlookers, but because of their age, were not arrested. The gesture did not change the law against women voting, but it did receive a lot of publicity and was, for the sisters, a final act of faith. Because in 73, Sarah passed away. Could not find anywhere why. I think she was just old. But after Sarah died, Angelina suffered several strokes immediately following Sarah's death, and it left her paralyzed for the last six years of her life, and she died on October 26, 1879. Wow. They were so close. Like, they did everything together. You you often hear about that, like, when two people are, like, so close that the other one will have... There's a really interesting episode of... um, Stuff You Should Know. It was one of the first Stuff You Should Know episodes I ever listened to, which was, like, Can You Die from a Broken Heart? Mm -hmm. And they, like, break it down into, like, scientific terms and things that have happened. And, you know, of course the answer is, no, you can't die from a broken heart, but, you like, it can have, like, very severe effects on you. Very. Well, she she was older, too, because in 70, she was 66, so she would have been, like... Yeah. I mean, she died when she was almost 80, which, for the early... Yeah, for the time, seems pretty legit. Yeah. Yeah. So Sarah Grimke is categorized as not only an abolitionist, but also a feminist because she challenged the Society for Friends, or the Quakers, but touted women's inclusion, but denied her. It was through her abolitionist pursuits that she became more sensitive to the restrictions on women. She so opposed being subjected to men that she refused to marry. Both Sarah and Angelina became very involved in the anti-slavery movement and published volumes of literature and letters on the topic. When they became well-known, they began lecturing around the country on the issue. At the time, women did not speak in public meetings, so Sarah was viewed as a leader in feminist issues. She openly challenged women's domestic roles. Wow. She was really cool. She was yeah, kind of she the, sounds really cool. Yeah, I wish there was more about her that I could have read. I probably if I you know had a month to prepare, I probably could have done a really deep dive. But just in the articles that I read, she was just so passionate and like strong willed and so ahead of her time in like no 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 I deserve to feel this way and to fight for these well, things. Well it sounds like know? she was kind of just born that way too. Yeah. She was kind of like born defiant. You know, she sounds like a soul who's lived before. Yeah. <laughs> you know, definitely. like that that um she had that kind of energy of yeah. like an old soul even from a very young age who had 
conviction at a very mm-hmm. young age, which is something that can very easily be like pushed out of you. Yeah. You know, especially if you have parents who are not nurturing that. Oh my gosh, not at all. They, I mean, that's hard. Mm-hmm. You want your parents to think the world of you, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So in the book, the her personal slave, Hetty, lives... And it's an interesting, for me, it's such a story of friendship between these two women and how they help each other through life and how Hetty kind of um, tried to help her fellow slaves rise up against and her relationship with her mother. And like, I forget books really easily. I forget stories and things like that. But that it's one of those like there's they talk a lot about like patchwork blankets and there's certain images in my mind that like I'll just never it just stays with you. Well, it taught me so much. About, yeah. Like, you know, I learned about these things. I need to read it. I it's really so, do. I mean, like, when you can, like, you're so, I don't know how you get anything done, but, like, <laughs> you're so busy. But this book is, for any of you who haven't read it, read it. For any of you who have read it, please message me and tell me what you think, because I love this book. It was on Oprah's list I think it, for, Yeah, it was forever. Oprah's Choice, right? Yeah. Yeah. I it should just so do good. it. I have extra time, you know. I, I am just really bring busy. bring it to work with you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I am really busy, but whenever I have extra time, because I'm so busy, I'm just like, I'm just going to veg and watch it'll, a TV show. It'll suck you in. And I should read a book instead, because it's so much more healthy for your brain. Read even just, like, the first chapter, and I swear it'll yeah, suck. That was yeah. one of those books that I just got through. That's what I need to do. I also just need to force myself to read more, because yeah. I used to so, so enjoy reading. I know. We talked about that. I think something has happened to our brains in this new, like, you know, technology-ridden era that all of our collective attention spans are mm-hmm. so fucking low. Well, and then it's like, I love reading the book before I see a movie or a TV show, and I wish I'd known that Haunting of Hill House was a book Oh yeah, before Shirley I started Jackson. watching it, because oh, I would have read it. But the book is not at all like the TV show. Okay, then Definitely I'll still read Definitely read the book. Um, it's not at all like the TV show, but listeners, if you haven't seen the TV show, oh my god, it's so good. I have 24 minutes left. It is oh, I, so good. I'm... Dying. It's so good. I can't believe you stopped. I would have been like, sorry. <laughs> Get out of my but house. But I can't watch, like, I have to stop during episodes. I rarely can I, like, just finish it because it is a very, like, it's not because it's scary. It's just like a it's very intense. emotionally yeah. heavy show for yeah, me where I need to, like, take a step back. I'm made of ice, so I... <laughs> like burned through the first seven and then Anthony was like, I want to watch it. So then I burned through the entire series again with him. Yeah. Um, oh, but so you guys watched the ending together? We watched the ending together. I yeah. love it. The last three episodes we watched together. I love it. Yeah. yeah. I'm, it was so good, but I definitely, it was very emotionally heavy for me. So I needed to kind of pace myself. Oh, it is. It is definitely. Yeah. Listeners, you should know that going in. There's some triggering stuff in that yeah. show. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready to hear you. Okay. So. I don't know how much of a forgotten feminist this is. It's definitely someone that I had heard of before, but didn't really know the story of entirely. I think I kind of heard of her in passing, probably Mm -hmm. in, like, elementary school or middle school. Um, I'm going to talk about Clara Barton, Mm. who was, I think she was called the Angel of the Battlefield. So. Yes. Clara Barton was born on Christmas Day. Love it. Like, a... Special ass lady that right. she is. But also she's like, fuck, I only get one present. I mean, totally. <laughs> she's such a selfless lady that I bet she doesn't even she's care. She's like, I don't need any presents. It's fine. If you want to feel like you haven't done shit with your life, research Clara, Clara Barton. Barton. Because it's like, oh, wow. Okay. Um, I'm- yeah, that's really what I need. I was just doing research about our mini episode with the um, all the election stuff. And I'm like... What am I doing with I, my life? No, actually, nothing. Yeah, <laughs> like same. Um, 
Because, yeah, I'm just, like, I feel like I'm busy now with just, like, two podcasts and a full-time job and, like, trying to now kind of sort of plan a wedding. I'm, like, I feel like I'm busy now. And then you read about someone like Clara Barton and you're, like, never mind. There's enough hours in the day. I can't even find a time to read a book and... Here's this lady. Okay. Please tell me all about her, because I know the name, and I kind of know her story, but not a whole lot. So all right. So please she, fill me in. She was born on Christmas Day in North Oxford, Massachusetts. Um, when she was 10 years old, she assigned herself the task of nursing her brother David back to health after he fell off of the roof of a barn and received a severe injury. So Aye. Yeah. She learned how to prescribe medication to her brother, as well wow. as how to, like, place leeches on him, which was a common practice at the time. We know not to do that now, but, oh like, God. at the time to bleed, you know, you you thought you could, like, suck the infection out of yeah. the blood because yeah. you thought the infection was in the blood or whatever. So she continued to care for him. Doctors, like, gave up on him. They were like, yeah. he is not going to live, but have fun playing nurse or whatever. Oh, that's and, so fucked up. I mean, but maybe here, they didn't use those terms. But here, play nurse on your brother but he until a, he dies. He made a fine. full recovery. He made a full recovery. Clara was able Saint. to nurse him back to health. So throughout her childhood, kind of like Sarah Grimke, she was um, what we would now consider to be kind of like a tomboy. Mm-hmm. She liked to run around with her brothers and her cousins and her parents kind of allowed her to do this until she got hurt and then her mom was like um we're gonna push you towards more quote-unquote feminine pursuits Mm -hmm. learn how to sew learn how to do all these other things because we don't want you to be like running around getting hurt yeah so because girls can't get hurt right it's not allowed boys you're I'm sorry, your son, like, fell off of a roof or whatever, <laughs> and you were like, that's fine. He can keep running around once Sarah, it gets better. Er, Sarah, uh, like, Clara gets a little dirty, and it's just like, no. Uh, no, no. No, no. So when she was 17 in 1839, she received her first teaching certificate, and this profession really, like, um, interested her. She started conducting an effective redistricting campaign that allowed children of workers to receive an education. So before mm. that... Uh, young people of working class backgrounds weren't able to really get an education. And yeah. Clara was like, I don't like that. So I'm going to step in and start teaching these young people yeah, girl. Uh, to read and all of that shit. So <laughs> <laughs> she's like, I feel like we're on an episode of Drunk History, but it's like, I'm going to teach these kids to read and all that there shit. Is an episode of, there is an episode of Drunk History on this, Love it. too, which I have not seen. But I saw that Amber Ruffin does it, and I'm going to watch it. I didn't want to watch it today because I thought it would like affect my story, right. but... Well, you'll watch it later. I will watch it later, because yeah. Amber Ruffin's amazing, and I love her so much. <laughs> um, so, she started working on these projects, and she went in at some point and was like, hey, I'm doing, like, a bomb-ass job. I should get paid equally. <laughs> so, she demanded equal pay for teaching. Um, while she was in Highstown, Barton... Uh, while, while she was in Highstown, Barton, learned about the lack of public schools in Bordentown, which is a neighboring city, and in 1852, she was contracted to open a free school in Bordentown, which was the first ever free school in New Jersey. Wow. And she successfully, after a year, uh, hired another woman to help teach over 600 people. Wow. Both women were making $250 a year by, like, 1850s money, right? So what would that be? I have no idea. A lot, <laughs> a lot. It's two fifty. Yeah. I mean, I think it was quite a lot for that time for a okay. woman for a woman to be making. Yeah, a good amount. Well, I was just wondering, like in comparison to like a male teacher. I don't know. I would have to. I would have to research that, which I haven't done. I that's know that great, they were though. making very but for the time, very like, that's good amazing. Money. Yeah, for a teacher at the time. Yeah. So I mean, teachers even today, it's like, come on, guys. 
their their work and like working with these like 600 people compelled the town to raise nearly four thousand dollars to build a new school building wow. because they had so many students that's amazing so this little town managed to like raise four thousand dollars in like 1850 i mean we were just saying that 250 dollars a year right was so four thousand's a lot yeah so once completed though this is gonna bum you out barton was replaced as principal by a man elected by the school board. Nuh-uh. Mm-hmm. They, Nuh-uh. Saw, they saw the position as head of a large institution to be unfitting for a woman. So she was demoted, and this is going to make you want to throw something, to female assistant. <laughs> and worked in a harsh... Lord, en- help me. Right. She worked in a harsh environment until she had a nervous breakdown. Oh, my God. And quit. Girl, I feel you. Right. But I've I fucking, been there. I, yeah, I mean, and Female I love, assist. I love that she was just like, man, I don't fucking deserve this. I worked really hard for this position. Yeah, if it weren't for her, there would be nothing there. There wouldn't be anything there. Yeah, she worked, she built it up from nothing. Ugh, so in 1855, she moved to Washington, D.C. and began to work as a clerk in the U.S. Patent Office. This is the first time a woman had received a substantial clerkship in the federal government and at a salary equal to a man's salary. Yeah, girl. So Get for it. three years, she received a ton of abuse and slander, as you can imagine, working with a bunch of dudes. Mm-hmm. They were constantly on her. Um, so, Gee, I'm so glad it's so much better now. Oh, my God. It's like it's not even like this anymore. I know, right? It's amazing. Crazy. I love it. <laughs> Uh, Subsequently, under political opposition to women working in government offices, her position was reduced to that of copyist. And in 1856, under the administration of James Buchanan, she was fired because of her black republicanism. Now, I looked this up because I was like, what is that? Yeah. Now, please keep in mind that... This was at a time when, um, and there's a really good video that shows this. I was just having a conversation with my coworkers about this. How the parties About how the parties flipped. Yeah. Well, because I was just talking to somebody the other day where they were saying, like, well, Democrats wanted the slaves. Please it's like, stop using that argument. I know. You sound like a fucking idiot. I know. Because there is a really good video. I'm going to try and find it because I think I need to keep it on hand for people like that. Well, and we should post it, too. That yeah. sounds like a good video. There's a really good video that demonstrates exactly how the parties flipped. Yeah. And essentially, all of the people who are Republicans now would have been considered um, Democrats or of another party. I can't remember back in the 1800s. Right. And people who are considered um Democrats now would have been the Republicans of this time. So she was fired for being a quote-unquote black Republican. And what does that mean? And I looked that up, and it says black Republicanism is a member of the Negro Republican Party, black and tan faction, a faction of the United States Republican Party in the South. She wasn't a person of color. She was white. Okay. Um, uh, A faction of the United States Republican Party in the South from the 1870s to the 1960s. Uh, as opposed to the Lily White movement of all women. So it was kind of, she was pushing back. It sounds like to me she was pushing back against what we have talked about uh, as far as, like, white feminism. Yeah. She sounds like a very inclusive Ooh, feminist. Girl, I want to be your friend. Yeah, yeah, who worked it. for uh, abolition and things like that. Yeah. So after the election of Abraham Lincoln, she was living with friends in Massachusetts for three years, and then she returned to the patent o- office uh, as a copyist. In the hope that she could make more room for, she could kind of lead the charge for mm-hmm. women in government, mm-hmm. right? She was just like, I will lead this wave. In 
1861, the Baltimore riot resulted in the first bloodshed of the American Civil War, and Clara... Clara? Hmm. I made her sound very fancy. Very fancy. Clara. Clara. Clara, uh, Clara happened to be living there at the time, and so she rushed in to help. Now, keep in mind, as we move into this next part of the story... Clara has no formal nursing experience. Yeah, she just took care of her brother. Right. She has no formal nursing experience. So she moved in. She started tending uh, to 40 wounded men. She was lacking supplies, so Clara began collecting supplies herself and personally delivering them to an unfinished Capitol building that was serving as a place where the men were being housed. So it was kind of like a makeshift hospital for all of these wounded men. Um. So that kind of began her wanting to identify herself with working in the army and making efforts towards helping Union soldiers. So um, prior to distributing provisions directly onto the battlefield and gaining further support, Barton used her own living quarters as the storeroom and distributed supplies with the help of a few friends in the early early 1862. Despite opposition by the War Department and among field surgeons. So she went to the War Department and to surgeons and was like, hey, we're sorely lacking supplies. We're sorely lacking people to um, to help tend these wounded soldiers because... She's getting shit done. Right, because, like, the Civil War is one of the bloodiest wars we've yeah. ever seen. It was horrifying. Mm-hmm. And um, she went to them and was like, can you do something? Can you give me money? Can you give me supplies? And they were like, no, we're not going to. So she was like, all right, I'm going to get a bunch of badass women mm-hmm. and we're going to find supplies ourselves. Mm-hmm. And we're going to, we're going to keep them in my apartment essentially and Love work it. and work out of my apartment. Love so, it. so yeah, she got the help of ladies aid societies uh, and they started sending bandages, food and clothing that would later be distributed during the civil war. In August of 1862, Barton finally gained permission from quartermaster Daniel Rucker to work on the front lines. She gained support from other people who believed in her cause. These people became her patrons, her most supportive being Senator Henry Wilson of Massachusetts. After the first Battle of Bull Run, Barton placed an ad in the Massachusetts newspaper for supplies. The response was a profound influx of supplies. She worked to distribute stores, clean field hospitals, apply dressings, and serve food to wounded soldiers in close proximity to several battles, including Cedar Mountain, Second Bull Run, uh, Antietam, and Fredericksburg. So the Battle of Antietam was one of the most bloody of the Civil War, having mm-hmm. already said that the Civil War was an incredibly right. bloody battle, uh, or war. So she went in, was, like, on the front lines. The guy who was kind of, like, running shit, the lead doctor, was, like, ready to give up. He was, like, on yeah. the verge of a nervous breakdown. And she's like, I got this. She it's swooped fine. in and was like, hey, you need a bunch of supplies? Well, here's a bunch of supplies. Granted, this this battle was so bloody that they ran out of supplies yeah. or certain supplies. They ended up having to use corn husks as um, bandages at one point. I mean, sometimes you have to get resourceful, you know? I mean, you got to do what you got to do. She's a crafty bitch. She's yeah, got it. She is a crafty bitch. So, like, at one point, there's a famous story about how there were so many wounded. And this doctor is like, I don't know what I'm going to do. It's getting dark. I can't tend to all yeah. these wounded. I don't have any way to tend to them. And she was like, shh, 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 shh. <laughs> It's, it'll be okay. 
and she like takes him into exactly she takes him into a um barn and she had filled the barn with lanterns and she was like we can work in here because they could see and so she became she um they started calling her the angel of the battlefield because she was known for showing up like right when they needed her like she would show up with like here's all of my supplies everything you could possibly help you i'm here Mm -hmm. i love it so in 1864 she was appointed by the union general benjamin butler as the quote-unquote lady in charge which i love that <gasps> yes, they said that. girl lady in charge she was oh, the what? lady in charge of the hospitals at the front of the army of james among her more harrowing experiences and this is uh, a real famous thing that happened to her which is so traumatic she was tending to a soldier and a um bullet flew by her and actually like ripped her shoulder yeah uh not not like it grazed her shoulder yeah. and kind of like ripped her shirt open yeah and and hit the person she was tending and killed them, like, oh right in front gosh. of her. Like, she was trying to, like, you know, seal his wound wow. or whatever. And then a bullet, like, hit her went shoulder right and then back. went right into the <gasps> sky. Yeah. That's traumatic. Yeah, super traumatic. So all of this happens. We come to the end of the American Civil War. Barton discovered that thousands of letters from distraught relatives to the War Department were going unanswered because the soldiers they were questioning about had been buried in unmarked graves. Mm. So as they were moving, you know, throughout the war, soldiers would die for whatever reason, whether it be in battle or any other reason, and they would just bury them, you know, maybe try and leave some kind of marker to indicate that they were there. But other than that... It's a lot. It's it's a lot. And it's a huge... Fatal. Yeah, and it's a huge area of land to cover. Yeah. So they were getting a bunch of letters. This um, this war department was getting all kinds of letters from families being like, my son never came home. Yeah. What happened? Where is he? And they just weren't answering them because they're like, we don't know. We've had yeah. so many deaths at yeah. this point that we don't know if your son has died or where he is if he yeah, has. Yeah, they don't want to say anything. Right. So... Clara kind of takes it upon herself, and she contacts President Lincoln, uh, and she wants to be allowed to respond officially to these unanswered inquiries, and she's given permission, and the search for the missing men is commenced. (gasps) So... After the war, she ran the office of missing soldiers at the four at four hundred and thirty seven and a half Seventh Street, Northwest Washington D.C. The office's purpose was to find or identify soldiers killed or missing in action. Barton and her assistants wrote forty one thousand eight hundred and fifty five replies to inquiries and helped locate more than twenty two thousand missing wow. men. Barton spent the summer of 1865 helping find, identify, and properly bury 13,000 individuals who died in Anderson Prison Camp, a Confederate Confederate prisoner of war camp in Georgia. So, yeah, she—I don't even know how she did this. Like, she created this, like, task force that, like, went out. And, and made like it found, their mission to find these bodies. That's amazing. Identify Especially them. at that time, it's like, how do you identify like, right. everything? That's I don't a know. Hard work. They they went, they found these bodies, like uh, 20,000 bodies, and were able to identify them and return them to their families, wow. which is incredible. That's amazing. Um, so Congress eventually uh, appropriated $15,000 towards her project. So they were like, here's some money. Yeah. Please do it. 
So uh, Barton achieved widespread recognition by delivering lectures around the country about her war experiences, and in 1865 to 1868, from 1865 to 1868. During this time, she met Susan B. Anthony. She mm-hmm. began uh, working for America uh, for women's suffrage, and she also became acquainted with Frederick Douglass and began becoming an activist for civil rights. So she was truly an intersectional feminist. Love it. Um, God, we kind of, like, our two stories... Very similar. ...seem like they just are so cohesive. Yeah, totally, totally. Um, so, you know, that's a lot in her life that's already... Amazing. ...that she's accomplished. So you can imagine, being this busy, she became sick. Yeah. And her doctor was basically like, you need to slow the fuck down. Yeah. You need to calm down. Um, you need to take a break. So she closed down the missing soldier's office in 1868, and she traveled to Switzerland, mm-hmm. where she was introduced to the Red Cross. Love it. So when Barton returned to the U.S., she was determined to create an American version of the Red Cross to assist in times of war. She met with Rutherford Hayes, who was the president at the mm-hmm. time, and he rejected the idea because he was like, we're never going to see the kind of carnage that we saw in the Civil War. Ever so, again. Yeah. So yeah, they're like, you don't you don't need anything like that yeah. because we're not going to have those kinds of issues in this right. country anymore. And that was kind of the widespread belief of the time. Everyone kind of believed that Isn't at the that time. Isn't that funny? I mean, in, in truth, on American soil, I don't think we have seen anything... To that degree since then. Right, but there's still been a lot of awful things. Correct. And so she finally was successful with uh, President Chester Arthur because she used the argument that the new American Red Cross could respond to crises other than just wars, like natural disasters, earthquakes, you know, forest fires, hurricanes. And so they were like, okay, you make a valid point. (laughs) There are disasters that happen outside of war that we could use aid for, that we may end up ill-equipped for. So they were like, cool, go ahead and found the American Red Cross. Yes! So (laughs) Barton became president of the American branch of the society and assisted not only with the Spanish-American War that Mm -hmm. followed, but also with numerous crises and national disasters. Mm -hmm. They continue, of course, to respond to national disasters Mm -hmm. to this day. Um... At one point, when she started getting older, she got forced out of the office by a new generation of all-male scientific experts Mm. who reflected the realistic efficiency of the progressive era rather than her idealistic humanitarianism. They were like, this silly woman, you're too emotional. We need to be... Yeah, you're dreaming too big. Yeah, we need to be more scientific in our approach to this organization. So, um... In memory of the courageous women of the Civil War, the Red Cross headquarters was founded, and during the dedication, not one person said a word. This was done in order to honor the women and their services. After resigning, Barton founded the National First Aid Society. So this woman, it never stops. It never stops. It's like one thing after another thing after another thing. She voluntarily went to the most scary place you could go to, which was the front lines to, yeah. uh, you know, tend to these men. Then yeah. she founded the Red Cross. Then she founded the National First Aid Society. Yeah. It never stops. Um, so she continued to live in her Glen Echo, Maryland home, which mm. also served as the Red Cross headquarters upon her arrival to the house in 1897. Love it. Barton published her autobiography in 1907 titled The Story of My Childhood. On April 12th, 1912, at the age of 90, she died in her home, and she that's died pretty, of pneumonia. That's pretty old, Yeah, though, for... yeah, she lived to be 90. That's so amazing. So that's really impressive, and she chalked 
her life was so like chock full yeah. of incredible things. It was jam packed. Yeah. So, so I, I'm glad I got to learn more because like, I knew about like the Red Cross and things like that. That's but I'm kind glad of what they I teach you in to, school. Yeah. I'm glad that I got to know more about her. Yeah. And that it was really kind of a voluntary thing. When I was taught that she was the head of the Red Cross, I kind of assumed that I was like, yeah, she's a nurse. But yeah. she was, I mean, she. She was just like, I'm just gonna do this thing. She had no real uh, training in being a nurse. She was just like, you guys need help. I think I can do it. Yeah. Let's fucking do this I know enough about it that I'm gonna make it work. Yeah, and I can, I can, or, like, not only was she, I feel like a lot of people. She must have been very authoritative. She must have had a way about her that made people listen to her. Right, because I feel like, and I also feel like a lot of people have kind of a specialty in one, or a gift, they're very gifted in one way, and she was obviously gifted in in many ways, because she was able to organize, she was able to, you know, tend to the sick, she was able to be in those very high-pressure situations. Yeah. And I don't think a lot of people are able to do that. she was clearly here for a reason. Yeah. You know what I mean? That was clearly her... Yeah, her, her purpose. Calling. Yeah. Yeah, yeah totally. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you for telling that story. Of course. And I do feel like our two stories were yeah. kind of paralleled in a way. I like it. She's like right after Sarah Grimke. Yes. I yeah. Love it. They're That's like so two cool. badass intersectional ladies. Yeah. Yeah. Who Isn't that great? Lived I, love the Civil hearing, War. I love hearing about things that we think are so of the time or new or progressive and then hearing about them in a time that was hundreds of years ago where it's like these people have always been around. It's just that they've been suppressed for so long. Time is a flat circle. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's kind of like people are people are people. And, like, yeah, you're affected by your generation and, like, the times you live in and all of that stuff. It, it matters. But that's why I kind of always rally against the argument of, like, oh, they were products of their time. Because I was like, you know what? Yes, of course. You're, yeah. product, you're a product of your time and environment. And that does affect you. Of course it does. But there but, are people that rally against that. And there were people at that time who did. And yeah. so, you know, you got to say, were these people just extra good? Or did that person, that other person, not try hard enough? Yeah. You know, to be as good as they should have been. It's true. And I think that there are times that it's easy to fall into what's easy. Or fall into what's expected. And also when it comes to, like, you know, when I think about the Grimke sisters and their parents, you listen to your parents when you're young. You know what I mean? It's usually when you're older that you kind of start to, like, learn for yourself a little bit more. But the fact that they were such independent thinkers at such a young age is so amazing to me that she was willing to run away from home as a child because she saw the injustices of what such was happening. Such strong conviction, yeah, at like such there a was, age. There's something that makes those people special, I think, to Of me. course, of you course, know? because, you know, I've had this conversation with people before when talking about, like, presidents, yeah. founding fathers and things like that, and them being like, well, they were great men and they were products of their time. Not that I'm arguing that. Like, not that yeah. I'm arguing that they weren't great men. But they but had their shortcomings. You also, you could have made a decision yeah. that was different than that, you had the power to. You chose mm-hmm. not to because it didn't benefit you. And I think that we need to take a look at all of that and not sweep it and we under need the to rug. Remember that today too. Yeah. When we make decisions in our government now. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Absolutely. That was great. I'm so glad we did another one of these episodes. Me too. I missed it. It, was it nice. feels good. It feels good. Um. So you guys, we hope you enjoyed this episode. We haven't had one of these in a while. No. Um. 
If you have any forgotten feminist favorites you would like us to cover, please, please. give us ideas. Oh, oh my, my gosh, God, that'd please. be amazing. It took me so long to settle on this one. It was amazing. I was going to do Lucretia Mott, and then I was like, you know what? You've been wanting to do that one for a while. I know. I was like, I have to do this. Yeah, so but every time we decide to do these, I get like, I change my mind a million times. Mm-hmm. I didn't settle on what I wanted to do for real, for real until like last night, and then I was yeah. like, yeah, do it. Yeah. Um. So if you have suggestions, we're open to that. If there's another uh, segment that you want us to do i really want to do another fictional uh favorite i totally do sometime too. soon so if you have a suggestion please go ahead and email us at yeah. neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com you can also get us on instagram at angry neighborhood feminist you can get us on facebook you can get us on twitter we're at twitter um at yamf podcast y-a-n-f podcast um what else do we have any news anything not really any sort of updates or anything right now, but thanks you guys again for continuing. I haven't checked the reviews in a while. It's been kind of a crazy week for me, but again, thank you for doing that. I re- we really encourage you guys to continue to do that and to encourage other people that you know are listeners to review us because it really helps us so much. Um, no, that's it. We are literally though, so like November and December. And then it's our one year. Yeah, okay. So here's something, actually, that I wanted to say. So uh, I actually thought about this earlier. We want to do, for our one-year kind of anniversary, which I think is the second week or something of January. Something like that. Something like that. We want to do a question and answer Like an ask episode. me anything. Yeah, ask, ask us anything. So I feel like we should start putting out feelers for that now. So yeah. if you have any questions, they can be questions about the podcast. They can be questions about us personally. Um, feminism. And, yeah, feminism. Any questions that you have. Politics. That you might, politics, sure. Like anything that you have that you would want to hear our opinion on or um, our answers to, please email those to us or send them to us on our Facebook or Instagram. Yeah. We would love to answer those. We want to yeah. do a whole episode of just question and answers. really fun. Because I think it'll be really fun. It'll be kind of a light change of pace. Yeah. Coming off of the holidays. So please, please do that. Yeah. That would be great. Um, other than that, I don't think we really have anything else to cover. So with that being said, we encourage you to, to rage on. on. Bye. Hey, it's Mae Whitman, and I play Frankie in the new Realm podcast, The Sisters. The Sisters is about a museum curator of medical oddities who investigates the origins of a mutated skeleton with two layers of bones. Seven ribs are completely fused, and you have no idea where this came from? No, she was sent here anonymously. Uh Uh-uh, not she... They, maybe? Wait. I've never seen anything like this. Soon, she uncovers an extraordinary mystery that connects her present with one family's tragic past in hauntingly dangerous ways. My grandfather was a journalist back in the 60s and 70s. He specialized in strange stories. Who are they? How are they connected to the skeleton? Play the tape. You'll see. Listen to The Sisters wherever you get your podcasts. We dream about it. We both dream about it. How often?